So today, we are starting a new series in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, and we're calling this series, Why Life with God Matters. Why Life with God Matters. And we think that this is a statement that really connects and addresses uh, a question that all of us as humans have at some point in life, if not uh, in the everyday life. And the, the question is this, does life matter? And it may look or be asked in a different way, does life have meaning? And if we really want to go deeper, we'll say, does my life have meaning? Does my life have meaning? Um, As I was preparing for this week specifically and thinking through those questions, um, I'm drawn back to a book I read a long time ago. Uh, It's called uh, by Douglas Adams called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Anybody ever read it or heard of it? Okay, some of us in here who are these nerds, right? I know, great book, it's super awesome. But in this book, uh, there's this supercomputer called his, well, it is called Deep Thought. And Deep Thought's uh, primary objective is to come up with the purpose of life. In fact, he's, it's com- the computer is tasked with coming up with the answer to life, the universe, and everything. And so deep thought uh, takes seven and a half million years of computations and calculations to finally come up with the meaning of life. And it comes up with the answer. The answer is this. The meaning of life is 42. 42, someone yells at deep thought. It's taken you seven and a half million years to come up with the meaning of life and that's all you got? And deep thought turns to the person and goes, that's correct. I'm pretty definite about my answer. The problem that you seem to have is that you never knew the right question to ask. And I thought about that is we're searching for the meaning of life, but sometimes we're asking the wrong question. And deep down, if we have deep thoughts, we really truly want to know what is the meaning of life. And does our life have meaning? But we just don't want it to take seven and a half million years to figure it out. And so we come up against a book in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes that helps us to work this out. These deep questions that we have in our lives. I had um, asked a few friends uh, on Facebook and had kind of just got a poll of some people to give me their ideas of questions that they wrestle with in life. And I asked them to think about what, what is the meaning of life, and I want you to think about questions that you wrestle with when you're thinking about that. So here's just a sampling of questions that uh, they sent back to me. Why is there so much injustice? Why do the rich get richer and the poor seem to get poorer? Why is there so much death if God is in control? Why does it seem that things always go someone else's way and not mine? I've asked that before. Why does life seem so laborious, so monotonous? Does anything I do really truly change things? Does my life really matter? These are serious And these are real questions. And God knows that. And so God has spoken to us and given us the book of Ecclesiastes. 
And here's the reality. No matter where you're at today, no matter where you find yourself and as you ask those questions, the reality of it is, is life is really messy. And it's really challenging. And God is not afraid to confront us there. God is not afraid to address the questions that we have in our lives of whether or not existence, meaning matters. And he gives us the book of Ecclesiastes and he addresses all the mystery of life. The good as well as the ugly. The beauty as well as the scars that we see in all of his creation. And in this book we find that the true deepest questions of humanity's existence come to light and come up to the forefront and God lets us just sit there as we start dealing with these deep questions. And God, through his word, speaks to us and says that no matter where you're at, no matter who you are, no matter what your deep questions may consist of, we, as humans, are all in this together. And we have to figure out how to navigate through the seemingly messiness, yet beautiful thing we call life. And as we learn to do that, to get real, to get honest, brutally honest about how we feel about life and each other, when we learn to wrestle with the deepest questions we have in our life, then we learn that God is there in the midst of it. We learn that a life lived without God is meaningless, but a life lived with God matters. That a life lived without God is meaningless, but a life lived with God matters. And that's kind of the idea or the theme that we're thinking through this entire series that we see throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And this is super important for us because our lives are bombarded day in and day out at work and in media and at school with uh, these ideas that true satisfaction, true meaning will come from the things that we observe or the things that we experience. That I can find true meaning in my life if I just have the best job or if I can just accumulate some more money in my life or if I meet the perfect man or woman. If, if just uh, my health was better if all of these things were met, then, then I'd have real meaning. Then I would have true satisfaction. These are questions that we wrestle with today, and these were questions that people have been wrestling with since the beginning of God's true story. Where do I find true satisfaction? And we're gonna see in Ecclesiastes as we journey through this really messy mysterious book that doesn't seem to follow a linear, systematic way of thinking. It's just organic and it's out there. As we navigate and journey through this over the next several weeks, we're going to see that this is true, that a life lived without God really is meaningless. But a life lived with God matters. And if we don't learn this now, we will journey through our lives feeling like we're failures, feeling like life really doesn't matter, there's nothing that I can do that can, that can change or make a difference, I'm gonna feel void, I'm gonna feel alone. 
But if we get the idea that through it all, we have a creator that created us to know him and to meet with him and to love him, that we see that all life, especially ours, matters. Life with God matters. And that's where we're going over the next several weeks as we journey through this book. But today, as, as we uh, start off and kick off, I really want to set us right with this understanding of where or how do we approach Ecclesiastes. If you've read this book, you kind of, it's one of those books where you go, uh, a lot of this seems to be a little bit confusing. I'll come back to it in about 10 years. But before we dig into this, we need to have a good understanding of why it was written and how it's structured so that as we journey through this, it makes a little bit more sense to us. So that's my aim today, is more of a teacher hat than a preacher hat today, and to give you the, the, uh, what we're going to call the makeup, the message, and the method of Ecclesiastes. The makeup, the message, and the method of Ecclesiastes. So about the, the makeup, what, what are, is the structure and the, the characters that we encounter in the book of Ecclesiastes? And the first thing that we want to know as we journey into this book is where do we find ourselves in the true story of God? Where does Ecclesiastes fall? It falls in the Old Testament, and if you know your symbols uh, right down here, I don't have them up here, but we think of the six symbols, these signposts that help navigate us through the true story of God. We are in the time, the third symbol that is, uh, we recognize it as the promise. That is the Old Testament time of the history of Israel. And the best for what we can gather, and there's a lot of difference of different opinions on this, is that this book of Ecclesiastes was written somewhere between 350 and 250 BC. This was an era known as the late Persian or early Greek Hellenistic period where Israel would have been really inundated with Greek culture and Greek thought. Alexander the Great had ruled and conquered and now there were other rulers coming after him. Israel was no longer in exile with Babylon. It was considered a post-exilic time for Israel, but Israel still wasn't on their own. They didn't have their own land as God had promised. There were still people ruling over them. And so this was a time where Israel didn't feel the pressure of exile, but at the same time, they didn't really have true freedom. And they were being inundated with this Greek culture and this Greek thought that said, true knowledge is attained as you experience things and as you observe nature, that true knowledge can be found apart from a religious experience. And so to kind of set the idea of how Israel was settled in this time is that they were continuing to think through the faith of their forefathers, the faith that they had heard from Abraham and the, 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 uh, all of the Ten Commandments that God had given through Moses on Mount Sinai, the faith of their fathers, worshiping the one true Yahweh God. They were holding on to that with one hand, and yet on another hand, they were wrestling with the Greek thought and culture that they were swimming in. It was a tension not far removed from where we find ourselves today. 
that on one hand, we are tempted and pressured to believe that the world's way of thinking, this humanistic way that we can get what we want when we want it, that we're the own, we're our own kings and rulers. We're pressured with that on one hand, on the other hand, to believe the faith of our forefathers, the faith that God outlines in his word. And so Israel found themselves in this time swimming in this Greek culture. And it's against this backdrop, backdrop that we are um, encountering two different voices that speak to us here in this book of Ecclesiastes. Two different voices, or perhaps maybe only one voice, and I'll get there in a second. But we are encountering a narrator and a preacher. And this narrator, if you look in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're just gonna jump around at some, some text today, and if you need a Bible, there's some there on the table. The narrator is somewhat introduced to us from the very beginning of Ecclesiastes. And if you're needing to find Ecclesiastes, it's after the book of Proverbs. And um, as a side note, Ecclesiastes falls into what is called the biblical wisdom literature, as well as Job and Proverbs. Ecclesiastes falls into that. And from the very beginning of this book, in the verse one of chapter one, we read, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Israel. And so we are encountering this narrator who sets this uh, story up from the very beginning. And verses one through 11 are gonna be the words of this narrator, and we'll tackle that next week. But this narrator kind of sets it up. And at the very end of the book, in chapter 12, you flip over to the end of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 12, verse nine, the narrator writes this. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. And then he goes on, a couple of verses later in verse 12, he says, my son, beware of anything beyond these, of these words that I've already narrated to you. So the idea here is that we have a narrator who's sitting with his son, and he says, I wanna tell you a story about this preacher. So I want you to listen, because the words that this preacher speaks is wisdom. But there's a lot of things that the preacher spoke and taught that I don't necessarily agree with, and we're gonna work this out together. That's character number one. The second character that we're introduced to in the book of Ecclesiastes is the preacher. Back again to chapter one, verse one. The words of the preacher. Now the preacher is never given a name throughout the entire book of Ecclesiastes. His job is to gather the people of God together and to teach them God's ways. He's also responsible for gathering all of the wisdom that will be found in this book of Ecclesiastes. But there's still another idea that perhaps the preacher and the narrator are one and the same. That really isn't necessarily two voices, but it's one person speaking. As if he has his son next to him, he says, I wanna tell you this story about Colette. 
and all the wisdom that he had and all the life experiences that he had. I want you to hear it. And he starts talking. And all of a sudden, as the son hears the narrator or his dad, perhaps his grandfather speaking, he starts realizing, well, wait a minute. That's my dad. That's his life story. It's possible that the two different characters are one and the same. Who is this preacher? And look how he's described in verse one. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, for centuries, the traditional understanding has been that this preacher is King Solomon. King Solomon, it makes sense, right? The son of David, king in Jerusalem. It's possible. And I'm gonna tell you right now, there's tons of debate. Majority of commentators now believe as they've learned more and more about Hebrew and they learn about the, the type of writing and ex examples that we see in here, that it probably was not Solomon that wrote this. That this was written by a wise sage who was responsible for the teaching of Israel and probably wrote this sometime, again, like I mentioned, in that early Greek, late Persian era between 350 and 250 BC. There's a lot of late Hebrew type of writing, a lot of Greek thought that is put in here, the way the questions are posed, the way it's, it's written. But at the end of the day, whether we believe it's Solomon or not, the idea is that we are to understand this as somebody who was wise and who had it all and lived life to the fullest, trying to figure out what the meaning of life really is. And so there's wisdom. The idea is that we need to see here that a life lived without God is actually meaningless. But a life lived with God matters. We see this tension between this autonomous type of living. Now remember again, this is most likely is a Jew a believer who held on to the faith of his fathers, trusted Yahweh, but at the same time, he is swimming in a culture of Greek thought. And the Greek thought at the time was again, you are your own God. We don't need the Greek gods of old, but you through reason and through experience and through knowledge of what you see with your senses, you truly can be the best you possible. You really are your own God, the king of your life. And this was, again, the culture that Israel's swimming in. And that, I can't stress that enough that we got to understand that as we go through this book. Dealing with one hand, this autonomous way of thinking. I can do it on my own. I can experience things and find true meaning. But on the other hand, he has this tension of realize I'm a follower of Yahweh. I'm a true follower of God. And he's battling this tension all throughout the book. Well, if I live for myself, maybe I'll find meaning. Apart from God's rules. Apart from God's commands. But on the other hand, we see Colette wrestling with the fact like, but that's not true either. 
that what I do know is that God gave us commands and he gave us his word to give us freedom and to give us protection. And so we see this message, these two tensions holding together as at the, lying at the heart of Ecclesiastes. It really is something that we can feel. We're tempted with it all the time as we have three high school students who seem to be glued to their iPhones and the latest, the greatest, the most quickest sense of information and technology that's available for them. And I cannot tell you how hard it is for Tanya and I on a Sunday to tell them, put it away. No technology today. Shut off the iPhone. You don't need to check your Instagram feed. You don't need to Snapchat, whatever it is. You don't need to do that. Put it away. It is like pulling their teeth out. It's super hard. And I'm not just gonna bag on them. It's hard for me. With the technology that's around us, the world is saying, look at how we are living now. This is what gives us meaning. And those things are good things. Good gifts from God. Work and relationships and love in nature and politics. Yes, even politics. All good gifts that have been marred by sin. And we battle with this even in our own homes of how do we help our kids who are swimming in a world that says you can do what you want to find true meaning and then also embrace the idea that God is your king. So what we see in Ecclesiastes is not far removed from what we experience even in our own lives. And I'm sure if you're honest, you can think through even your own circumstances of how you battle that on a day in, day out type of basis with the people you work with, experiences that you've had in your life or even have now that you're constantly feeling this tension. Do I live for myself or do I live for God? Do I trust myself or do I trust God? And that lies at the heart of Ecclesiastes, this tension. And so how does this tension get resolved? Is there an answer to this? And if you read through the book of Ecclesiastes for 11 chapters, you're not finding the answer. And you're like, why on earth does it take us 11 chapters to wade through all of this tension? But it seems that we do kind of come to some sort of resolution to this tension that we feel all throughout the book. If you turn again back to chapter 12. And again, like I said, there's a lot of more giving information today, but I think this is gonna be super helpful. I hope it is, pray that it is for us as we journey through. As this tension lies throughout these 11 chapters, at the very end of the book, chapter 12, verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. That at the end of the day, the tension that we feel, the deep questions that we are wrestling with, does life matter? Does my life have meaning? Why is there death? Why is there injustice? Why does it seem that the poor are not rescued? Why does it seem that those who are in positions of power abuse that power over others? 
Questions like that that we'll encounter through Ecclesiastes over and over again. At the end of the day, fear God. Be in awe of God. See his glory and his holiness and obey his commandments. Follow him and trust him. And at the end of the day, when life doesn't make sense, we can trust God even in the midst of that. With all the questions that we will be left with, and I guarantee at the end of this book, all of your deep, darkest questions and thoughts aren't going to be 100% answered, guarantee it. But even in the midst of that, you can trust God as the creator of the universe, the king of all things, that he is in control. And God does what is good, right, and perfect. A life with God matters. Flip back to the beginning of the letter. Verse two, this famous refrain. The ESV puts it this way. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. In other words, all is pointless. It's futile. The NIV version says meaningless. Meaningless, utterly meaningless. And both of those translations don't really give, in my opinion, the most effective way of understanding the word. And I think a better way of understanding this word as we go through, and we're gonna be using, I'm just gonna be, I'll be back and forth between the ESV and the NIV as we go through this series. Because there's some things that are super helpful in the NIV, and there's super things that are much better in the ESV as we go through that. But here's what I want us to understand, because it was helpful for me to think of this more as meaning baffling or elusive or enigmatic baffling. Everything in life is baffling. It's mysterious. I don't understand it. And this idea here that everything is fleeting, everything's a breath and a vapor. Throughout the entire book, we see irony and paradox. Meaningless, meaningless, or vanity of vanities. He mentions it a couple times through the book. And he's doing that on purpose so that we see that through his word meaningless, there actually is meaning. And he uses that word to show that he is frustrated at what he's experienced in life. As the king over Israel, or so he says, somebody who had it all, who maybe is speaking as if he's a Solomon type of figure, somebody who had all the wealth, all the women, all the power, all the leadership, all the, the architecture that you could want and, and the means of which to build and, and grow and plant everything at his disposal, all of it is baffling to him. And he's intentional with using that so we see there really is meaning behind it. He's also intentional and deliberate with paradox, and the idea with that is to give us something that seems contradictory. And again, if you've read through Ecclesiastes, you see this time and time again. He puts these two things juxtaposed together that seem to contradict one another. On one hand, he's saying life 
my nature, all of nature, work, sex, labor, money, all of it is meaningless. But on the other hand, he's saying, but all of this is good because it's from the hand of God. So live your life, eat, drink, and be merry. He is intentional with having us wrestle through the tension of what we think should give us satisfaction in life really won't. Those are good things from God, but they're not gonna give us meaning. The only one that can give us meaning is God. Life without God is meaningless, but a life lived with God matters. And so as we wrestle through this book, keep that in mind, that what seem like contradictions are intentional and deliberate to point us to a deeper truth. That life without God is meaningless, but life lived with God matters. Let me ask you, why do you think God would allow this book to be in our Bible and to be something we're preaching through today? I'd love to get your thoughts on that. I agree with that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, there's comfort in that, knowing that, man, humanity has been messing up for a long time. I'm no different. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. Quit, what, what does it tell us about discipleship? Of, another way of saying that is, what does it tell us about being a follower of God? Tell us anything? You're not gonna figure it all out. Yeah. Does that bring anybody comfort? Discipleship's messy. Trying to figure out how to live in God's ways and work it out in the everyday stuff of life, it's not cake. It's challenging. And sometimes God lets us just sit there in the questions and wrestle with our faith. That's real. Anything else? Good. Yeah. Yeah. 
Remember who the creator is and who the creation is. Think, yeah, please. Yeah. What people gravitate towards, what is delightful for them, what might give them meaning. Right. Right. Yeah. This is real life. It's like God knew what he was doing by giving us Ecclesiastes, right? Eugene Peterson writes this about Ecclesiastes. I think this was just gold, so helpful. He says that Ecclesiastes functions not as a meal for us to enjoy, but as a bath. It is not nourishment as much as it is cleansing. It's more repentance and purging. We read the book of Ecclesiastes so that we get scrubbed clean from all these ideas that are idolatrous and presumptuous about who God is and how he should work and all the easy answers to the questions of life's meaning. In Ecclesiastes, we see that God is the living center of everything we are and everything we do. Nothing can stand on its own apart from God. It is meaningless. It is nothing. In other words, a life lived without God is meaningless, but a life lived with God matters we know that there is one who can give us freedom from the meaninglessness. That there is one that rescues us from the futility. That a life lived with God is a life lived under the reign and rule of his son Christ. Who as Paul tells us in Colossians, is our very life. Jesus is our life. It's interesting as we talk about paradox, when you put two things together, it was Jesus himself who said in John eleven twenty five 25, that I am the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in me, though he die, so shall he live. What? And he who lives will never die. I wonder if Jesus read Ecclesiastes. Probably did since he spoke it and breathed it out, inspired it. But we see here that paradox, contradictions they seem, the challenges, the questions that we have that we wrestle with, how can this be true? And yet I believe this to be true, leads us ultimately to decide whether or not we're gonna follow God or not. And even at the end of the day when we can't answer and life seems to be meaningless and seems to be a breath or a vapor to us, will we trust God through it all? And will we lean on Jesus who gives us the freedom and rescues us from meaninglessness? And so, Father, my prayer for the Missio Peoria family as we journey through this book is that we see Jesus clearer than we ever have that our allegiance to him is greater than it ever has been. That even in the worlds that we swim in, both of secular thought and biblical thought, 
that God, we can approach both under your reign and that we can be a blessing to those around us who think differently. God, help us to trust you deeper through this journey through Ecclesiastes and that through it all, we will learn at the end of the day to fear you and obey you with joy because this truly is life meaning. In Christ's name we pray, amen.